Revelation chapter 20, the millennium. Uh, it's good to see you this morning and glad that you're here. I know the flu is rampant and it's hitting New Mexico. I think they said the worst is yet to come. So in all honesty, uh, be careful about that. And if you do get sick, stay home. It's all good. You know, nobody else wants it. And you certainly don't want to pass it on to anybody. I think fist bumps are good. Elbows are even better. And uh, greet one another, uh, but not with a holy kiss. That's a cultural moment. You don't need to do that, okay? Um, but in all seriousness, uh, be careful. Take care of yourselves and your families and make sure uh, that you're as healthy as you can be, okay? Uh, because that's, it's a serious issue. They said, I saw a statistic this morning, in all seriousness, one out of 10 deaths that are taking place in America today are directly a result of the flu. And so uh, be aware of that. That's, no, that's a serious issue. And um, make sure you're, you're doing okay, all right? Revelation chapter 20, praise the Lord in the millennium. Uh, certainly there's going to be still sin, but the consequences of uh, sin and the whole curse of the fall will be greatly alleviated. It won't be completely taken care of. That's not going to take, take place until after the millennium. Uh, I think that's where the destruction of heaven and earth and the creation of a new heaven and earth is going to take place. And at that point, sin will be completely uh, rid of. Uh, but during the millennium, uh, there's going to be obviously uh, far less impact of sin within this world. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. Amen? Uh, what a beautiful hope we have in Christ Jesus. And, uh, and we're so thankful for the hope that God has given us, which is future faith. And the opportunity to walk with the Lord today in the midst of what he has for us. Uh, and so we're grateful for his rule within our hearts now and the future uh, rule that he will have here on this earth in a physical way. And I think when we think through that and we really begin to reflect on that, uh, that is something that we would, I believe, as uh, Christians, want to walk with the Lord in every moment of every day. And we certainly want to be declaring the goodness of God to the people all around us. Uh, because we have hope and we want to share that hope with others. Christ died for us. He died for everybody. And everybody has an opportunity to respond to the Lord. Everybody has an opportunity to be saved. The question is, how are we walking with the Lord day by day, moment by moment, to make sure that Christ in and through us is being revealed, to yield to Christ so that his glory uh, the truth of who he is, his love, and all the characteristics of who he is may be seen in and through us. And I think that's absolutely essential. If you look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, we looked at uh, some of this last week, and I'm just taking chapter 20 in different pieces because there's, there's so much in here. The millennium really isn't discussed much in Revelation. Uh, in fact, it's almost hardly discussed at all. And I believe uh, the reason for that is because there's so much information about the millennium in the Old Testament. And so I believe the Holy Spirit uh, did not lead John to write about the millennium. It is referred to. It's clear that it's there. Uh, at the same time, there's not a lot of detail given. And we're going to look at some of the detail from the Old Testament and just kind of walk through that. But I want to just highlight several things here that we learn in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Uh, and some of the other passages regarding 
the millennium and just review and kind of bring you up to speed a little bit. Uh, there are several issues, obviously, in this passage that we can see. He starts out, he says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, that's a, ref- a reference to the millennium. Millennium is just a thousand-year period of time. I believe that it is literal, and I believe Jesus Christ will rule from Jerusalem over this entire earth and the nations of it. During that time, Satan will be bound for the entire, almost the entire time. He will be released at the end. One of the things we learn here is specifically that. He's going to be bound. He's going to be placed in the abyss, which is the pit, which is part of Hades, which we'll get to next week because of the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. But the fact of the matter is, is that Satan will be bound for the duration of the millennium. The second thing that we learn here is in verse 3, where John records that the nations... There are nations during the millennium. It's really interesting. Satan's bound for a thousand years. Verse 3, threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Now, what do we learn from that? Number one, there are nations during the millennium. Secondly, that right now, Satan is seeking to deceive the nations currently. And during the millennium, he will be bound so that he will not be deceiving the nations. There is a world system. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Satan does seek the blind, the eyes, the minds, the understanding of the lost so that they will not come to know Christ. We are in a spiritual battle, folks, and it's very real. It's very prevalent. It's all around us. We also know that greater is he who lives in us than he who is in the world. We also know that if we yield, if we submit to the Lord, Satan will do what? He will flee. Why? Because light puts out darkness all the time. The darkness always wants to tell us that the darkness will put out light. Right? Isn't that how it works? Darkness is greater. Darkness uh, always extinguishes uh, the flicker of the flame, the spreading of the light. No, no, no. That is antithetical to every biblical truth that there is. The light always puts out darkness. But there is a spiritual battle, and it is taking place, and it is all around us. And we need to be cognizant of that. We don't need to be fearful of it. We know that God is greater. We know that Christ lives in us. And where the Lord dwells, there is light. And as a result, we don't have to fear darkness. Praise God for that. So there are nations, Satan at at this current time is trying to deceive the nations, but he will be bound during the millennium so that he will not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed where he will be released for a period of time in order that Gog and Magog will take place, which is not the Ezekiel Gog and Magog, but it is the end of the millennium, Gog and Magog. So he'll be released. Uh, in order to deceive the nations. You can see that in verse 3. You can certainly see that in verse 8 where he says, we'll come out to deceive the nations. Satan will be released from his prison. We'll come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand 
of the seashore. And it's very clear. Uh, fire comes down from heaven and devours them. The Lord destroys these nations that are deceived by Satan at the end of the millennium. And he takes care of this. He punishes them. In effect, he eradicates them in a very uh, incredible way in many ways. The other things that we learn are all unbelievers will be resurrected to face the Lord at the great white throne judgment after the thousand years. This is the second resurrection. And we looked at this uh, more closely last week. The first resurrection is of believers, and all believers will be resurrected prior to the beginning of the millennium, which John clarifies is the first resurrection. And if you think of the first resurrection being an umbrella, there are, in effect, five moments during the first resurrection that take place. There is Christ who is resurrected. He is the first fruits. There's the church, the dead in Christ rising first, and those who remain will be caught up in the air with the Lord. That is the second resurrection in the sense of uh, the whole period of time, the different things that take place, the order of things within the first resurrection. There are the two witnesses. There are the Old Testament saints that uh, take place or are resurrected at the end of the uh, uh, tribulation. You can see that in Daniel. And then there's also the tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation that are resurrected. But there's the second resurrection, which takes place at the end of the millennium, which are unbelievers. And that's the great white throne judgment. We're going to look at that more closely next week. Satan and all fallen angels along with unbelievers will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. You can see that in verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's interesting to note that the Antichrist in effect is the first fruits of the second resurrection. And I don't want to lose you in this, but think about this. The first resurrection is all about believers. Christ is the first fruit. He's the first to be resurrected and to receive a glorified body, indicating for us what it is that we're headed towards. The first resurrection for all unbelievers of all ages of human history will take place prior to the millennium. The second resurrection will take place after the millennium, and in effect, the Antichrist is similar to Christ in that he is the first to be resurrected, to then be thrown into the lake of fire, to be punished and tormented forever. Now, that's an incredible moment. You begin to think through this and how God has orchestrated to make very clear not only who he is, who the Lord Jesus Christ is, but also that which is false, so that he reveals the falseness, reveals Satan's uh, temptation and all his lies regarding who he says he is in order to compare, to make sure that we understand who God truly is, that he's all-powerful, that he is almighty, that he's over all things. So just as a side note there, but Satan is certainly bound, released, And then he's thrown into the lake of fire, as we looked at in verse 10. The millennium is referred to throughout this thousand-year period of time. And the millennium itself is an amazing period of time on earth. There are several different views on this. And I I just want to give you these views because some of them have become more and more prevalent today in our culture and in a lot of people's thinking. There are those who are what we would call amill, amillennial. 
And in other words, they don't really believe in a literal millennium. They spiritualize, they allegorize the millennium. And they would, in a sense, say that Christ's reign is taking place right now in our hearts, and that's a picture of the millennium, and that the victory Jesus accomplished has bound Satan as a result. And so they don't look forward to a thousand-year period of time actually on this earth taking place where Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem in a literal sense. They allegorize this, they spiritualize it, and they keep it from being literal. And I utterly disagree with this because I think that we take and we hold to a literal view of scripture. We're not saying that figurative language isn't used, but where possible, we take the plain meaning of the text. We look at the grammar, we look at the history, we look at the occasion, and we handle the word of God in such a way that we come to a literal interpretation of the word of God. We do not spiritualize it, right? Israel is not the church, if I could use one example. Israel is distinct from the church. The church has not replaced Israel. And one of the purposes of the millennium, which we're going to look at, is the restoration of Israel. And the people of Israel, the Jewish people, will declare that the Lord Jesus Christ is their Messiah. And they will serve him during the millennium, those who are saved. The second view is also, in effect, an allegorized version, a spiritualized version. And it is... Uh, the idea of the post-millennium. And the post-millennium has the idea that the rapture comes at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. In other words, we are in the millennium currently, and it's really interesting how this gets all twisted up. Uh, this view kind of has fallen out of favor because of World Wars One and Two, and because of all the conflict within the world. I mean, it's very difficult to say that we're in a time of peace, that things are getting better. When you start looking around, especially in this uh, last century, certainly the persecution of the saints would indicate that this is not a worldwide peaceful moment. I always loved hearing my father-in-law in this moment. He'd say, ask the Romanian saints whether we're in the millennium right now. And there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, we may be enjoying life in so many different ways, uh, in, in many different ways than perhaps what the rest of the world enjoys. We're thankful for the freedoms uh, that we have and, and that we enjoy on a regular basis. The reality is there are many, many, many believers suffering for Christ all through this world. And so it's really hard to say that we're already in the millennium. I find that one very difficult. I believe the view that we would hold is what we would call the premillennial view. In other words, we are looking forward to the millennium. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to, and it's going to be literal. It's something that's going to be for a thousand years. It's going to be on this earth, and Jesus Christ physically is going to rule and reign this earth from Jerusalem. And I think that's exactly what the Bible teaches. I think that's important to understand and hold to in terms of how you view Scripture as well as how we understand where we're headed with regard to these things. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is going to right a lot of wrongs. He's going to right a lot of wrongs. I think at the time of the millennium, we as the body of Christ, the church, 
We're going to have glorified bodies and we're going to rule and reign with the Lord. And to the extent of how we walk with the Lord today and are transformed by Christ and how we experience the Lord and walk with him in obedience by faith, yielding and surrendering to him, uh, that level of ruling and reigning in the millennium will be impacted. In other words, what we do today matters for tomorrow. And we can look at 1 Corinthians 3 to see that. How is our work going to remain. The foundation's going to stay. It's there because it's in Christ. Salvation is something that is secure when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because it's not based on works at all. It's based on the work of Christ. Now the question is, as believers, how are we serving the Lord? How are we walking with him? And it's not just creating a checklist in order to go do for God. It's rather receiving from the Lord what it is that he's calling us into and then empowering us to actually accomplish. That's called grace because it's by grace that we walk. It's by grace that we're transformed. It's by the work of Christ in us that is then revealed through us. And the question is, how are we walking today in the midst of that? And how will that impact our time here during the millennium? That's a really interesting question. And I think it's something very important for believers to really grapple with. Because there's an impact to how we yield to Christ today for our eternity. So, those are the three views. I think uh, there's several things that I want to point out with regard to the millennium. We don't know all of the details, folks. <laughs> and uh, Revelation's been an interesting challenge for me to take massive amounts of information. I mean, there's so much written about Revelation, it's incredible. Uh, Tom Elif and I were talking about it, and he said... Uh, your view of Revelation uh, at this moment depends on who you're reading. <laughs> and I think that's kind of true. There's a lot in it, and there's a lot to it. Uh, the millennium is just an amazing picture in the Old Testament. And if we look at it not from a spiritualized view, but rather a literal view, there are some really fascinating moments here, and I don't have all the answers. Uh, but I do believe that there are some things that we can look at that will give us hope and will really encourage us today to continue to walk with the Lord faithfully, yielding to him, submitting to him, surrendering to him, however you want to word that, uh, because there is coming a day where we will be on this earth in the glorified bodies serving the Lord. And the question is, to what capacity? The rule of Christ in our hearts will be realized fully in a renewed world. I want you to think about that for a second. The rule of Christ in our hearts right now will be realized fully in a renewed world. How are we walking with the Lord? See, Christ, when we become believers, Christ comes to live within us. He takes up rule. He's the Lord. We just sang it, right? We don't make him Lord. We confess that he is Lord. He's Lord whether we agree that he is or not. He's the Lord. The question is, how are we yielded to him? How are we walking with him? How are we serving him? How is God ruling and reigning in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives today? Because I want to tell you something. One day it's going to be realized even more fully in a renewed world. So three things 
as we look at this. First of all, there's the rule of Christ, which is going to be from Jerusalem. There is secondly, the renewed creation. Renewed creation. And lastly, not least, there's a restored Israel. And boy, what a beautiful truth that really is. So first of all, the rule of Christ, uh, which is from Jerusalem. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. I know that's not Revelation, but it's Ephesians. And it has something to say about this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul writes this. He says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, and he makes this statement. The summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on where? The earth. (laughs) Now what is God constantly at work towards right now, today? Not only in our own hearts, but also with regard to the administration of this world. And I believe it is simply this, the summing up of all things in Christ. He's the Lord. He's going to rule over all. He has utter supremacy, and God is constantly working to sum all things up under the headship, the lordship, the rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Everything is working towards that end. All the nations, they may think they're getting away with stuff. They may think that they're going their own way. They have their own plans, but I can guarantee you this. God is orchestrating things in order to bring all things under the headship the rulership, the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Absolutely, without a doubt. Folks, when we look around, you look at North Korea, you look at Iran, you look at whatever, Russia, you want to you name whatever nation, America, I don't even care. It doesn't matter what nation you want to talk about. You think for one second that the Lord doesn't understand exactly what's going on? You think for one second that the Lord is not absolutely sovereign over it? I don't believe God created evil because he's good, utterly good. There's no shifting shadow in him. There's not even the hint of a shadow. But he allowed evil. But evil doesn't overcome good. Good overcomes evil. God is able even to use evil in order to bring about his glory. And he is working towards that end with everything. What an amazing truth that really is. I think, and I believe, and we'll get into this a little bit more next week, but prior to the beginning of the millennium, there's the judgment of the nations. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and following, we get this picture of the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And it's really interesting. Uh, I believe that the judgment of the sheep and the goats is about the judgment of the nations and how individuals within those nations treated Israel. In other words, we've gone through this seven-year period of time, the tribulation. You get to the end of it, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. Israel has experienced national revival. They've been saved. And not only have they been saved spiritually, but they've been saved physically because the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes in, slays the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, and destroys the armies of the Antichrist. By the way, we're with the Lord. When that happens and we don't have to do a thing, we get to watch. And we get to watch the Lord just establish his power. He starts down in the south, 
in Basra, and he ends up at the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And there, after that moment in time, he begins to establish his rule and reign. There's probably a period of time in between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennium. This is where the uh, first resurrection is completed. The Old Testament saints are resurrected. The tribulation saints are resurrected. We're probably judging, on, seated on thrones with the Lord. And in the midst of that, there's this judgment of the sheep and the goats. And I believe it's the separation of the individuals that have made it alive through this tribulation period of time. And some have treated the Jewish people kindly, some have not. And I think it's an interesting moment. Some people concerned about the timing of those things. Amen, I'm with you on it as well. But I think it's really fascinating because the Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it this way. Works we know are not what save. Amen? Either prior to becoming a believer or after, in other words, substantiating what supposedly happened in the past. Our salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of works, period. It's of God. It's of the work of God in Christ Jesus. So the Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it this way, a Gentile going out of his way to assist a Jew in the tribulation will mean that that Gentile has become a believer in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. It is not the works that save them. It is the works that reveal that they have been saved. And folks, I think that's important to understand. We're not saved because of works. Our salvation is not substantiated, so to speak, by works. It is in Christ Jesus alone because the finished work of Christ and by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. But for all believers of all ages, whether it's before the tribulation or during the tribulation, when Christ comes to live within us, folks, there are certain things that ought to change. There's no question about that. Recently, I've had quite a bit of discussion on this issue. And folks, let me put it this way. There are certainly three automatic moments in our lives as believers that will take place because the Lord Jesus Christ has come to rule and reign within our hearts. And the first thing is there will be a heightened understanding and conviction of sin. If you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ and Christ has come to live within you, then friend, there is no way that you can keep on sinning in the same way without the conviction of the Holy Spirit taking place in your life. Because the Holy Spirit lives within us to convict us of sin. And the second automatic thing is that the Holy Spirit will lead us to the Word of God. And we will begin to recognize that the Word of God is something that we absolutely need. Is it because of me that that's happening? Absolutely not. It's because of the Holy Spirit within me. And here's the third thing in my mind, and maybe there's more, but these three I think are pretty obvious in some senses. When you become a believer and the Lord begins to convict you of sin and the Lord begins to lead you into his word, and if you choose to refuse him in that... And friend, if you don't believe that believers can refuse the Lord, then take some time in the epistles. Read about the Corinthians. Read about the Galatians. I mean, there's a whole lot about uh, all the different things that were happening in believers' lives that were not revealing the love of Christ. Amen? If there is a refusal to follow the Lord, then what does God do? If you're his child, what's he going to do? 
He's going to discipline you, isn't he? In other words, if you're truly his child and he loves you and you're refusing to follow him and refusing to yield to him, refusing in that sense to be obedient to him, what is the father going to do? He's going to discipline. Why? Because he loves us too much to continue to allow us to go away that is contrary to his ways. So folks, works do not save us, either prior to or after. But in the midst of this, understand that when Christ comes to live within us, clearly, because Christ lives within us, there ought to be a change. And there should be good works, because the Lord Jesus Christ himself has created us for those good works and will lead us into those good works. And if we choose not to follow him in the midst of it, then he will discipline us, and I believe he'll discipline us to the point of even taking us home if necessary because he loves us that much. Friends, understand that this judgment is a judgment where, in effect, there is a treatment of the Jews, and it is simply a reflection of what God has done in that individual's life. It does not substantiate, so to speak. It does not cause their salvation to take place but it certainly reveals that they have been saved already. And I think that's absolutely essential. So those Gentiles who lived through the tribulation are now allowed to enter the kingdom due to their being saved. And as a result of their salvation, they had a certain way of treating the Jewish individuals with kindness and God's grace and his love and his mercy, giving cups of cold water, in the Lord's name. Randy Alcorn says something about the millennium that I think is important. He says, we desire a tangible and physical eternal existence. Think about that. I think all of us desire that. We desire, meaning all of us as, as humanity, we desire a tangible and physical eternal existence, something that won't fade away. And that's exactly what God promises us, a home that will not be destroyed, a kingdom that will not fade, a city with unshakable foundations and incorruptible inheritance. The passing of time without the consequence of sin. The passing of time without aging, where there's an incorruptible aspect to our lives. That's an interesting point, isn't it? I think all of us long for that. I know recently for me it's been an amazing journey to think about time and the passage of time in many different ways. And I think there's so much truth to our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, that future faith where one day we'll be all together and sin will not interfere with our relationships at all whatsoever. We will never have to worry about death. We'll never have to worry about anything that would be a consequence of sin. We'll just get to walk with the Lord day by day, moment by moment, every day, enjoying him and his creation, which, which is what we've been created to enjoy. What a beautiful truth that really is. Christ's rule over this earth has, has begun in our hearts, but it's going to be 
physical. It's going to be from Jerusalem. It was certainly prophesied. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, it says this, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This is uh, this Davidic promise, this Davidic covenant that one would rule who was a part of the line of David. David's response to that was beautiful. Who am I that this would be the case through me, that this would be prophesied through me? We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the line of David, and we know that he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. He's going to sit on the throne of David from Jerusalem, and that's going to be a physical ruling. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, says this, The Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name, the only one. How beautiful is that? The Lord himself will be the king, and he will be the only ruler over this earth. Walvert and Zook put it this way, the reason such tranquility is possible within the millennium age, is that all the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. This means more than people knowing intellectually about the Lord. The idea is that people everywhere will live according to God's principles and word. Think about that. What an amazing truth. There's a respect for the law. There's a following of the law. Everybody will have a knowledge of the Lord, but they will not just simply have an intellectual understanding, they will live according to God's principles and word. The Lord's rule was not only prophesied, it was certainly, it will certainly be a rule of peace. All the nations will know the Lord and will live by his rule. If you look at Isaiah chapter 65, verse 19, it says, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Think about that. What an incredible moment. No more weeping. No more crying. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, listen to this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And if you jump down to verse 9, he says, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Wow, what a rule, what a reign the Lord is going to establish on this earth. Wearsby puts it this way, his kingdom will involve the righteous rule because the Son of God and the Spirit of God will administer its affairs justly. 
When the Messiah King speaks the word, it is with power. His kingdom will also mean a restored creation because nature will once again enjoy the harmony it enjoyed before sin entered in. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord Jesus Christ will rule and he will do so from Jerusalem and it will be a worldwide ruling. All the nations will submit to the authority of the Lord, the one king. There's also a renewed creation. And I think this is a part that we really enjoy talking about because we, we think of this, and, and like Randy said, we, we look forward to something that is physical, that is tangible, not ethereal. Right? We're not going to be floating ghosts, strumming harps, kind of cherub-like up on some cloud. This is actually what we've been created for. We're going to be ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the things about the renewed creation is that we're going, uh, and obviously we have glorified bodies, but the people who are still on this earth will have long life and health. Isaiah 65, 20 and following speaks that. It says, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Verse 23 says, They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. There, there is still the consequence of death. That won't be destroyed until the end of the millennium where the earth and heaven will be destroyed with fire and God will recreate this. But the curse of sin will be minimized. People will live longer. Death will not have such a grip. There's going to be prosperity. Verse 21 of that chapter says, They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. See, I wonder if there's going to be locks on the doors in the millennium. Think about it. We live in fear, folks. We live in fear all the time, and it's increasing. We worry about our cars. We've got all kinds of sophisticated ways in order to protect our cars. We worry about our homes, and we've got all kinds of sophisticated ways to protect our homes. You can look at a phone and see who's ringing the doorbell, and you could be across the country. It's incredible, right? I've got two Maltese's. They'll scare anybody away, you know. <laughs> right? I mean, we live in fear, folks. We have all kinds of laws to protect our property. Even our thinking. If I come up with something and I have created it, then I want to protect it because I don't want anybody else to steal my idea. In those days, none of that will take place because the Lord will rule. That's an amazing thing. I think it's fascinating to think of the animal kingdom. Now, I have never owned Maltese's before, but they are pieces of work. I refuse to take them on walks because it's just downright embarrassing. I mean, they're so small. Good grief. And they bark at everything. They think they're so big. I mean, they're just such a picture of pride in the flesh, you know? I mean, glory, there's something else. 
But I, I am amazed how smart they are, and I'm amazed at how they've been created. I'm amazed at their personalities. They both have different personalities. Bennett, the older one, is like a little wizard. He's kind of Gandalf. I mean, we actually had somebody who groomed, and they said, well, if I needed uh, advice, I'd go to him. I wasn't sure where to take that, but I got the idea of the personality moment. You know what I'm saying? Brinkley, he will do anything. He's so brain dead. He'll do anything. He's always into something. If I hear the something rustling, I know it's Brinkley in the trash. You know what I'm saying? I won't go into all the other stuff he gets into. But <laughs> they're pieces of work. They have personality. It's amazing when you look at God's creation. And obviously, uh, even creation longs for the revealing of the sons of glory. There's been a consequence of sin that has impacted creation. Isaiah 65 verse 25 speaks to this. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. Think about that. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Man, is the ox happy about that? The dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Or Isaiah eleven six, 6, where it says the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Hey, moms, it's okay. Right? Let them go. <laughs> that lion's not going to hurt your son. Think about that. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. Incredible, isn't it? That actually kind of happened to me when I was a little kid, honestly, in uh, Africa. When I was born in Africa, one of the stories that I would love to talk to some of the people one day in Nigeria about was a specific instance where they had cut some area in the backyard for me to play in. And my mom could watch through the kitchen window. So evidently I was playing and the area that they had cut out, suddenly they found uh, an adder's nest. And there was a whole bunch of little adders, which I don't know a whole lot about them, but evidently they're very, very, very poisonous. They would have killed me. And so thankfully the individual that helped with the gardening and everything saw that and came out and saved me. Yeah, it's amazing. But in the millennium, oh, just name them. <laughs> there's Frank, there's Tom, there's Johnny, and they're slithering along, right? Interesting, isn't it? Fascinating. Well, there's a restored Israel. Man, I'm running out of time, aren't I? Can you all hang in there just for a minute? Romans 11, 1, he says, I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. May it never be. Think about that. Is the Lord done with Israel right now? Absolutely not. And folks, this whole thinking, and forgive me, I could really get angry about this. The idea that the church has replaced Israel and the ways in which that has been used to abuse, to persecute the Jewish people is ungodly. It is insufferable. And I find it indescribable that believers all over this world look down on the Jewish people because of wrong theology in that. It's very disturbing. 
I'll not say much more on it. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. They won't have to say, hey, you need to know about the Lord because they'll all know the Lord. And in verse 35, he goes on, he says, says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from being before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all the they have done, declares the Lord. What is he saying? He said he has thrown creation, he has created it, he holds it together by his spoken word. And if he does not keep this promise, if Israel is not a nation to him, then let all the created order of things cease from existence. That's how secure this promise is to Israel. Friend, that is an amazing truth. And it's one that we ought to be very careful to acknowledge and recognize God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. He is a covenant-keeping God. And in the millennium, we will see a restored Israel. What a beautiful, beautiful truth that is. You know, the rule of Christ is something that we can enjoy today. Today. We can look forward to the times where the lion and the lamb and all the rest or the fact that Jesus is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. We can look forward to the the reestablishing of that relationship in a sense with Israel and the renewing of that. Amen. But do you realize that today we can experience the Lord and his rule and reign within our hearts because Christ has come to live within us. And I think that's essential. How are we living today today? in light of eternity, in light of the millennium, in light of the rule of Christ? How are we walking with the Lord today, recognizing his lordship? How are we walking with him in peace? How are we walking in his wisdom? How are we walking in his love? Because we can do that today because of Christ in us, because of his grace. The question is, how are we walking with our ruler today? How do people view us And recognize that there's a Lord because they see us submitting to him and walking according to his strength, his wisdom, his law, the law of love. The way we treat one another, the way that we're concerned and care for others. How do people see us doing that today? Because we don't have to wait for the millennium to experience the ruling of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. We can experience that as believers today. That's essential. Folks, that's a snapshot. But I'll tell you what, I'm so thankful for God's grace, aren't you? I look forward to a day on this earth where we can enjoy what God has created for us in a heightened sense. 
where sin and the consequence of it will be alleviated to a degree that it'll be a remarkable moment. We'll have glorified bodies. We'll be serving the Lord. But to see this earth as God had intended it, we understand that there's still coming time of sin that'll be dealt with. Satan will be released. But to see it in that sense is gonna be an amazing, amazing journey. How are we living today in light of that truth?